1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Danielle Fuentes Morgan about her book, Laughing to Keep from Dying, African-American Satire in the 21st Century, published by the University of Illinois Press. I'm delighted to have a fellow Cornellian or Cornell alum on the network. And so, Dr. Morgan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Great. So I shared like a little bit about your about your background being a Cornelian, and um, and and I was wondering if you could tell us more about yourself, your background, um, what sparked your interest in African American satire, and how you came to write this book.
0: Absolutely. So um, my. My interest in writing this book um, occurred long before I went to Cornell, before I even realized this was really an area of study or something that you could actually write about in in academia. Um, I can't really remember a time when satire and comedy wasn't kind of central to my life, and one of the stories I like to share about this is is um, about my uncle Kevin, um, who had um, I had a very close relationship with him, and he died um, in 1997. But he was one of the first grown ups who really listened to me and really talked to me about you know pop culture and things that I was interested in, and compared them to his own interests. And so, even as a little kid, um, he and I would watch you know episodes of Saturday Night Live, we would go to Blockbuster and get these um, videos, Best of Eddie Murphy, you know, Best of Chris Rock and all of these kinds of things. And we'd watch them together. And he'd talk to me about what I found funny, uh, what he found funny. And we'd talk about kind of the, the nature of comedy. He'd always fast forward, you know, the parts that he felt were inappropriate for me to watch. But we'd talk about these things together. And so from a very young age, I felt like comedy was worth conversation, that it wasn't just kind of the fact that it made us laugh, but it was worth thinking about why it was funny, because my uncle really talked to me about about those kinds of things. Um, Once I got to Cornell, um, I was in the very fortunate position of having a really, really great um, experience with with the vast majority of the professors um, I took in Africana Studies and in um, the English department, particularly with African-American literature. And one of my professors, um, Dr. Rache Richardson, uh, told me in conversation, either my first, it must have been my first year at Cornell, to think about the thing that I enjoyed about African-American literature that I would want to do 40 hours a week. Um, Because she said, you know, when you're writing this dissertation, it's going to be a job. That's going to be your job is writing this dissertation. And immediately without really much, you know, um, preamble or too much um, conversation, I sort of blurted out African-American satire. And she was like, okay, well, if, that's, if that feels good to you, that's what you should lean into. And so I was in the really fortunate position um, of having faculty members at Cornell who supported that, who didn't think, oh, this is kind of frivolous or this is not um, you know, this isn't academic enough, this isn't scholarly enough. Um, uh, Dr. Margot Crawford uh, was phenomenal in really supporting my research efforts and sort of um, making meaning for me um, out of what comedy could be and how comedy has sort of always been a part of that African American literary trajectory, how we see it in sort of these standalone comedic pieces, but how we also see these comedic threads throughout the literature. And just this kind of way that, um, you know, the the professors I worked with, um, Dr. Dagmawi um as well, these, these professors were really interested in my desire for this kind of interdisciplinary lens and thinking about, you know, pop culture, thinking about literature, thinking about sort of canonical texts, and merging them all together. So I I was really in this fortunate position. um, And I don't think I realized it at the time how fortunate I was um, when I began this kind of uh, work that not everybody was encouraged in this sort of way to sort of deviate from the norms of what academic um, literature looks like. And I think it's been a a really, it it was great because I feel like um, we're in this sort of scholarly boom period of, um, talking about comedy. There are all of these up and coming, brilliant comedy scholars, all of these African American satire scholars who are all sort of emerging at the same time, you know, um, and, and sort of, um, expanding and extending off of these brilliant, um, satirists who were writing 20 years ago that were doing this kind of new thing and really able to, um, Think about these things in different ways because they set that they set the bar for us and they set the groundwork and now we're able to sort of reimagine and reinvent what the field looks like.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely, and definite shout out to Africana Studies at Absolutely. Cornell <laughs> as well. I had I had a lot of great transformative classes and um, I think Cornell was a great great place um, to incubate these these kinds of projects. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to begin with uh, uh, the title of the book um, and ask you about the general argument that you're making about African-American satire in the 21st century. And so your title of Laughing to Keep from Dying um, and your argument, it kind of casts satire as a space for Black selfhood or an expression of Black interiority. And satire is also a survival technique in that it, it keeps us alive. Um, And so could you talk about this argument about the relationship between satire, black interiority, and survival?
0: Absolutely. So when I started thinking about a title, I kept coming back to what Langston Hughes and others have called laughing to keep from crying, this sense in African American cultural traditions that we often make jokes to prevent ourselves from sort of um, having to bear the entire burden of the sadness and the trauma of life Uh, within the 21st century context i was really um, drawn to the fact that these comedians and satirists are um, still making these jokes sort of in the midst of black lives matter where we're just trying to articulate that our lives matter something as simple as that right seemingly simple as that just to say that something matters to say someone matters Um, and so i wanted to extend what Hughes, I wanted to extend what Hughes and others have talked about, which is this idea that, um, you know, we use comedy as an actual survival technique and that we've always used this. So for me, laughing to keep from dying, um, does three things. It creates laughter that we are laughing about these experiences, but that the laughter highlights trauma. It highlights the reality of what we are laughing at, that even though we're laughing, there's this sort of traumatic element to it. And then it indicts the traumatizer. So it's not just sort of catharsis, um, but it's also serving this kind of real um, purpose in saying, this is the person who has caused these wrongs, who has created this harm. So the role of uh, satire as self-making Um, And a form of social justice for me means that it's critical to think about the real life implications of comedy um, in a way that's both accessible and demonstrates not just what happened in the past, but what's also happening right now. Um, Within the frame of laughing to keep from dying, that means that we are talking really boldly and clearly and precisely about what it means to... um, in the 21st century, particularly in this kind of post-Obama moment, where there was this sort of post-racial mythology um, being purported while Obama was president. And then, you know, certainly after his presidency, when Donald Trump became president, that, that whole idea, which, you know, is problematic in and of itself and should not have been kind of the mythology, to my mind, that people were clinging to. But once Trump was president, um, it really sort of crumbled and people, I don't think, were able to, to hold to this kind of ideology anymore. And so what does it mean in 2016 in particular and beyond to to um, have to grapple with all of the many ways to die? There are certainly, you know, the concerns about police brutality, there are concerns about um, sort of race racist killings um, and all of these kinds of things, but there are also the psychic deaths that that Black people are um, facing every day, where you're told that you're you know that that um, your way of being, your way of existing in the world, is somehow inappropriate, or somebody tries to make you small or box you in. That laughing to keep from dying becomes a space for self making, where you are able to. More thoroughly and more fully, sort of articulate who you are for yourself, that you can use your own language, create an in group, and demonstrate um, the validity of your way of understanding yourself, of yourself, um, your identity, the identity that you endow yourself with.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, And so I wanted to. To begin, when you, you begin uh, chapter one by talking about satire and and slavery, um, even though you you mentioned in the beginning that you didn't want to begin with slavery, yet twenty first century satirists constantly refer to refer to slavery. Um, and I remember uh, this made me recall um, this particular comedian that I don't even remember their name, but the, I remember the joke, which was like, why are black people so funny? Um, were slaves funny? Is that, is that where we got it from? And I thought about that in relation to your use of Jordan Anderson's letter. Um, and so Anderson is, um, I assume he's a freed person writing a letter to his former master and he uses satire and irony to make his master's request that he return to the plantation, you know, seem ridiculous. And you also mentioned that his letter was published in, in the newspaper, which I didn't know. Um, so what could you what do we know if anything about Anderson and his family? What does Anderson's letter tell us about satire and slavery and how African Americans use it? And you know what did you make of his satirical tone?
0: Yeah. So I, the, the Anderson letter was really one of the critical pieces of, of this entire book. once I, once I discovered this letter, I um it made me really realize um the sort of long tra- trajectory of African-American satire and that I feel like that's my own sort of um 21st century tw- late 20th early 21st century sort of um, arrogance of thinking like oh we've you know we're doing something so different and you know we're we're a very different kind of generation but we see that this has happened um, since, since Africans were brought, you know, certainly this was going on, this kind of satirical um, insight was happening in Africa. But when we come to, um, to the new world um, enslaved, uh, we see that enslaved Africans were also using this kind of um, language as, um, you know, a way to sort of articulate grievances and articulate trauma with plausible deniability that you can sort of throw up your hands and say, Oh, it's, you know, it's just a joke. Knowing nothing, of course, is ever just a joke. But you have that sort of protection. And you can play into the um, the beliefs that, that these uh, slavers wanted to have about enslaved people. Oh, I'm just too, you know, I I didn't mean anything by it. I'm not clever enough to have come up with something offensive. I was just talking. It doesn't matter. So when we think about Jordan Anderson, you know, census records show that, that he and his family existed and this wasn't fiction, This is these are real people who wrote this. Um, and I think that's really critical here because we often hear people sort of disparagingly say like, oh, that would never be me or I would have fled. I would have started a rebellion. They could have never enslaved me. I'm too, you know, powerful, I'm too like self-assured. Um, and I guess that's, you know, it's a sort of comforting mythology a lot of us hold on to, yeah. to imagine that, you know, the enslaved were somehow just like lacking some sort of revolutionary quality that you yourself have, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's super disrespectful to think that. And it also, it's just not true. Um, and what Anderson's letter does for me is to show This kind of revolutionary tone in writing that he uh, what's so special to me about that letter is the fact that he's making these kinds of jokes with plausible deniability telling his his former master, you know, of course, I'll come back to the plantation and work if you pay me and if you pay me all of my back wages for the entire time I was enslaved and you pay my wife. All of her back wages. And then he sort of breaks that comedic lens and says, You know, I would rather die and starve than have what happened to some of the women on that plantation at the hands of your sons um, happen to my daughters. And then he moves back into that comedic lens to sort of offer himself that protection. But this is hugely, this is incredibly brave. And it's a way to use comedy to assert his humanity to to assert that he understands what's happened and he is sort of you know he's really unflinching in in articulating this so it's the way comedy and satire can offer plausible deniability when we need it but also create a way to sort of highlight the absurdity of real life and make it clear that the satirist understands that what is what has happened is absurd and ridiculous um, and worthy of critique.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And that is so interesting that that they're that they exist in the in the census records and things and things like that. Um, every time I, I I don't encounter this letter very often, but whenever I do, I, it's just learning new things about about them is so is so interesting because that letter is so powerful, as you as you talk about in the book. Um, and so I thought that. In the book, you make this really interesting move by advancing this idea of a, or this method of a satirical reading of texts that may not on their face um, be intentionally using satire. And so you argue that one can use a satirical reading due to the social absurdity the text underscores and the inadvertent critiques embedded within them. And this was something that I had never encountered and I was intrigued Um, Because you use satirical readings to interpret like the novel Push and the film Precious, or this controversy over Obama's dad genes and an episode of Atlanta. And so basically, it it enables you to include within the book different texts that one might not think about being included in a book about African American satire. Um, And so can you talk about this method of satirical reading as an interpretation, um, how you develop it, and maybe an example of how you use it?
0: Sure. Um, so one of the things, as I continued working on this book, um, that that started becoming clear to me is just how blurry the line between the real and the fictional <laughs> became. Um, as I was sort of watching the sort of the end of Obama's presidency and the beginning of the Trump presidency, and you know, I this this started as a dissertation, but I've shifted i i had to shift a lot because you know my dissertation sort of ended with obama as president (laughs) and then you know the book is coming out and being reworked in the midst of the trump presidency when all of these satirists are doing all of these new things and the sort of way i was thinking about what um you know what satire's purpose was the goals of african-american satire had shifted Um, Greatly under Barack Obama versus under Donald Trump. And so, um, you know, it's this kind of way satire and self satire get blurry. So, in this contemporary moment, I think that understanding satire as a mode to be enacted and a way of thinking about the world that you can read the world through a satiric lens is a way of understanding the absurdity of real life. Um, So in some of these texts, you know, the Obama dad jeans one, for example, it felt to me, even though this was real life, you know, people were, there was this strange controversy that he was wearing jeans that, you know, that were a little baggy and loose fitting and, you know, that weren't as stylish as I guess the media wanted him to be at that point. um, That, that reading that as, satiric gave us a way to think about the meaning to think about the racialized and gendered meaning of how obama's dad genes were being sort of um discussed in pop in um the media how people were interpreting it what the you know what those racial implications looked like what the implications about black masculinity looked like what it means to imagine that obama did that intentionally to um sort of allay fears about his black male body and all of these kinds of things. So it became this way to make meaning out of these situations and to not just say, oh, that doesn't matter. It's just a pair of jeans. Instead, I wanted to think about, well, what if it does really matter? You know, what if, what if thinking about Barack Obama's dad jeans becomes a microcosm of how we're treating, how we understand the first black president? Um So we make meaning, we can make meaning because we know the rules of satire in comedy and fiction. Uh, so now we can look at real life, now we can look at drama, now we can look at these other um, texts, both real and fictional, that seem to suggest the absurdity of real life and figure out um, why things are unfolding the way they are. So it, using satire, as a lens for reading texts and as a way to critique text is just another survival technique. It's a way to make meaning in a world that um, doesn't always afford us ways to make meaning. That often, you know, sort of gaslights us and, and tells us that we're thinking too deeply about things. The whole, you know, it's not that deep. It's not that serious. But when we use satire as a lens, we can use that absurdity, the the sense of um, analyzing the absurd to make meaning and to ground ourselves in the real world.
1: Mm -hmm. I like that satirical reading as a survival technique. That's really, that is really interesting. Um, And so also in the book, you have this idea of um, kaleidoscopic blackness, um, which acknowledges all the ways in which being black is valid. Um, and so I thought that was a really a good way to talk about complex black images, because so many times um, black audiences, we critique the stereotypes of ourselves in the media, but then we don't always have this language um, for the opposite of stereotypes, Yeah, um, even like a scholarly analytic to think about that. And your term kaleidoscopic blackness gave us this name that, that you know, that we can use to talk about complex blackness. Um, And I thought, you know, you talk about insecure in the book, um, the the television show, and you call it, you know, regular black people living their lives. And I thought this was maybe a really interesting example of kaleidoscopic blackness. Um, But so can you talk about what you mean by this term um, and how you use it in the text?
0: Absolutely. So kaleidoscopic blackness is kind of my shorthand way of talking about the, the fact you know, and I think you, you said this so so beautifully already, that there are just there are lots of ways to be black and they're all valid and there are lots of ways to understand your own blackness. This is something that Black people have always known, right? Like we've we've Mm -hmm. always known that there are lots of ways to be Black and that stereotypes don't hold and that you can subscribe to the stereotype if you want, or you can push back against it, you can disregard it, all of these kinds of things, that your Blackness is your Blackness. Um, But what kaleidoscopic Blackness really does is give us a short way of talking about it, and it pushes back against the monolithic way Blackness is often portrayed in the mainstream. One of the, the reasons I love insecure so much is because it does such a really great job of showing a variety of black women and black men who are you know who understand and perform their blackness in different ways that are all authentic to them. And what's important about that is that they are friends and you don't have this kind of episode where somebody's blackness is being questioned or where, you know, somebody isn't Black enough or isn't really Black or anything. They just kind of recognize, like you do in your Black friend groups, that there are lots of ways of being Black and that they all work together to create a Black social sphere. One of the things I love also about Insecure is that, you know, we are moving, that that what Issa Rae does, and we've seen this in other TV shows as well, um, Living Single is one of my all-time favorite TV shows and I think it does such a beautiful job of this where you've got people who would normally be the you know the kind of one black friend you've got them as friends together and they're not just friends because they're the only black people that they know right it's not sort of i'm going to be friends with you because there's only two black people in in our work group they're friends and they're black and their blackness matters but it's not the only reason that they're friends and i think we see this When we see, you know, in the earlier episodes with Molly at her law firm, when we see at at her original law firm, when we see um, Issa at We Got Y'all, when we see these women sort of navigating what it's like to be um, the black friend or the black person or the black lawyer, the black employee, and then retreating from that into their friend group, their black friend circle, uh, where they can just kind of be, where their Blackness is there, but it's not meant to sort of um, be the only way, the only way that you can understand them. So it's that Blackness, um, that kaleidoscopic Blackness allows us to think about all of these different facets and ways of being Black and how they work together.
1: Mm-hmm. And so um, satire is a notoriously um, tricky genre yes. and <laughs> that the audience may not get the joke um, or they may laugh at the wrong thing. Um, and I, I think there are myriad ways in which they, satire can backfire. Um, and you bring our attention uh, to the ways that satire can maybe fail in, in, its, in its inability to offer a liberatory move towards social justice, um, and so every every satire is not one where we're laughing to keep from dying. Um, and so, what satires um, don't produce this this sense of social justice?
0: Well, one of and I I talk about this one specifically in the book, but I think it's one of the best examples, especially because the satirist himself has also talked about why this joke didn't work um, so the Chris Rock joke from the 90s that was inwards versus black people is kind of infamous for for failing he makes this joke where you know he he's he talks about the difference between uh, people who are the inward and people who are black people and how he hates people who are the inward and and sort of um, sort of pushes them into this kind of stereotype of um, derogatory blackness, where black people are just sort of, reg- you know, the more regular black people living life kind of ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but by his own metric, he says later on that people misunderstood the joke and it did more harm than good, that it gave people a way to um, think about using the N word basically um, and saying, hey, Chris Rock says there's a difference. I'm not talking about all Black people. I'm talking about these Black people we disparage, so it's okay. Um, and this is exactly the thing, that it's why satire is so tricky, because it can ultimately do more harm than good if it's misunderstood. That kind of joke told to Black people, to an all-Black audience, might still be super problematic, but there's a sense of understanding Um What Chris Rock's frustration is when it's told to a multiracial audience, um, there is not only more chance for it to be misunderstood, but more chance for the joke to be bandied about in a way that actually um, discounts the satire, discounts the kind of clever point Chris Rock was trying to make. And instead just says, ha ha, there's a difference between these two people and people who are in words are bad and aren't worthy of our respect. The flip side is that when the you know when the joke is successful, it can be a form of restorative practice, but it's so tricky to make sure that that's actually what's going to happen um because it it depends not only on the satirist intention and making that intention clear, but also the audience has to receive it as satire. And if they don't understand it as satire and they think it's more of a straight joke, that's where the problem comes comes in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I was interested also in these um, different modes of laughter that comedy can elicit, um, which is, which um, you know, kind of enables these this release of contradictory emotions. Um, and you have this idea of revolutionary laughter throughout the book, and that made me also think about Bambi Haggins, who has this idea of laughing mad, which is to vent anger through the mode of laughing. Um, but you know, your idea is, is different in that it emphasizes laughter that inspires um, delight and and sorrow in the pursuit of social justice. And so I just thought this was interesting, this, these like different registers of, of laughter that we can parse um, and how maybe this laughter could also be tricky because one can laugh and not get the joke as, as you just talked about, or it can be difficult to discern different forms of laughter. Um, so could you talk about uh, this idea then of revolutionary laughter?
0: Absolutely. So revolutionary laughter is the idea that um, that our laughter matters because it's an acknowledgement of our in-group belonging and of our Black interior self. So it's, it's we laugh because we get the joke, because we know who the joke is about, and because we recognize that other people um, within our group also get the joke, that that we are all laughing together. Um, it's kind of within the context of sort of the black Black cultural experiences. This is like, a big, it's like a big inside joke, right? That everybody sort of gets it and understands what is being, um, why this joke is significant. Um, and what this really means is that we know who we are despite mainstream narratives that might try to diminish or diminish who we are or say that we're something different or even try to appropriate our stories. Um, and so the laughter, when I talk about that moment, that, that, that it inspires delight and sorrow. We're signaling both the humor of being misunderstood. That it's just ridiculous, right? That it's that it's silly. How often this happens. How foolish people are for not seeing our our who we are. Um, but also the horror of it as well. That this is um, both funny and not, and that that it's that kind of um, in between space. Um, And I think even more importantly, perhaps, is the fact that it creates the space where uh, we can connect with others who also recognize the ridiculousness of being misunderstood and being marginalized in this kind of way. That um, That it opens up this black interior space where you can be yourself for yourself and be your true authentic self, and also creates a space where you can make connections and form connections with other people who are also being marginalized in in similar ways. Um, and that's where the real work of revolution um, and reclaiming and restating your own identity can begin. So it's this sense of being your own individual self, but also being a part of this kind of black collective experience that I think is really critical. And the laughter opens that up. It allows us to see, um, it allows us to see the silliness of being misunderstood. It also allows us to see the, the danger of being misunderstood and it also reminds us that there are others who are being misunderstood that we're not alone um because a lot of what this misunderstanding does is to kind of culturally gaslight black people into feeling like oh you feel so misunderstood but you know we've really got your number we really understand who you are um these are you know if you um do this thing you're not really black because we've determined what blackness looks like if you do this other thing um, it's not black enough, or it's too black, or, you know, all of these kinds of things. This laughter creates a space where we don't have to think about that. And we can sort of be more our authentic selves with other people who see our authentic selves as well.
1: hmm And so um, I wanted to transition um, from um, talking about the, I guess, the ideas in the book to to, to writing the book. Or, um, so I had this question about Scholarly writing about satire, and so speaking of laughter, um, as I was reading the book, of course I found myself laughing out loud. Um, you know, usually because of the funny examples, which is not very common for an academic book, but actually makes but makes it a very enjoyable read. Um, and of course, you 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 know communicate the importance of the ideas, but the the material is obviously satirical and comedic. Right. Um, and so it made me think about the difference between academic writing and the scho- scholarly tone and comedic content. Um, and I, I, I also, you know, deal with this myself. And I wondered um, what was if you found yourself having to balance um, these possibly divergent forces of, of scholarly writing and, and comedic content.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, I was first interested in the material as a fan. Um, and I always approach comedy and satire even in my writing as a fan and a researcher simultaneously. Um, and so there wasn't there wasn't really a way to separate the two in my writing. I think it would have felt really stilted and inauthentic to not sort of, um, you know, approach it with, with love in my heart for the material. So I I write from a place of love. And I think that comes out in my material, which is why, you know, I wanted to include these excerpts. I wanted to um, let people see, you know, even if I'm critiquing a comedian, um, generally speaking, it's, you know, done from a place of love and, and, you know, with the hope that if they, you know, if they were to read, (laughs) read some of my critiques that they would know that I meant it um, in a way that that's meant to, you know, inspire them to think critically about the kinds of jokes they're making and how they're disseminated. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, as a, um, I guess I'm still a junior scholar at this point. I've been, you know, a professor for five years now, so I guess that's still junior. Um, but that that a lot of junior scholars are often told that like we're supposed to put aside our love for the subject because it's, you know, it reveals our bias or it, you know, it's not appropriate in scholarship. And I just, I kind of hate that because, you know, we came to the material, most of us at least, because we were really into it, because we liked it, because it it matters to us in some kind of way. And so, you know, for me, it, I, I wanted that to come across in the book, you know, there's nothing worse to my mind than reading about comedy from somebody who doesn't seem like they get the joke or see why it's funny. Like, why are you writing about comedy if you don't think any of this is funny? You know, why why would you choose this this subject? And so um, I wanted that love to come across um, while also, you know, be still writing really critically about the material and trying to balance that. So I'm hoping that came across in the book as well, that it's, you know, that I love the material, but that my love for the material doesn't mean that it's absolved from any critique.
1: No, that definitely, definitely came across. Um, And you definitely have these uh, very, you know, like you said, loving critiques where you do hold people's, you know, feet to the fire. Um, which is, which is great because, you know, you're, because you're making this point about, you know, maybe their jokes are satirical, but they're not, you know, necessarily, um, like you say, laughing to keep from dying or, you know, leading us down the road of like liberation or social justice. Right. Right. Um, which is, which is, which was great. Um, and so as, as you were talking about writing, um, I was also, I wanted to ask you about, and you you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but maybe you want to expand upon this process of turning your dissertation into a book. Um, What was that like? And um, did you have to make, as you you kind of said, you had to make some changes um, as as the time was going by. Um, And so what was that? What was that process like? Did you have to add new material? Um, uh, Just can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say only about, 40% Forty percent of the book, something like that, um, made it made the cut from the dissertation, um, and even where I kept the same texts or same um, you know, same things that I, I was researching or critiquing, my thinking had changed quite a bit from then to now. Um, the first draft of the book, like I mentioned, was completed in two thousand sixteen. Obama was still president. Dave Chappelle, um, was kind of gone. At that point, he wasn't doing comedy. By the end of 2016, Trump was elected and Chappelle came back. Um, it was host of Saturday Night Live. So I had so much new that I had to really do. Um, and at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, was kind of this um, return to satire and thinking about um, the satirical way we were trying to cope with um sort of national upheavals, the kind of overt uh national upheavals. Um the chapter um on get out and insecure, for example, was entirely new. Um it was it was completely new. Um and it it felt really necessary to include that. And the conclusion about Dave Chappelle and his return and um his, you know, being on Saturday Saturday Night Live and being on um, having his Netflix uh, stand up specials and all of these things, um, those felt it felt critical to have. If I was writing about the twenty first century and I was making these kinds of post Obama moves, I felt um, a sense that that it needed to be as up to the moment as possible. And so I was really, I mean, I was revising things. Up until really, you know, and adding new materials up until like the moment I was handing it over to the publisher um, for for their, you know, critique, um, and, and yeah, I think I think it it sort of had to be that way because the difference between 2016 and 2017 and the kinds of comedies and satires black comedians and satirists were making um, is really is really critical, um, and just from a sort of fundamental level. The beautiful thing about writing a book rather than a dissertation is that you don't have to do quite so much preamble of talking about, you know, everybody that you've ever read <laughs> in your life and why your, you know, argument is valid. Because a book doesn't require that, whereas your dissertation committee wants to really see that you're, like, engaged in the literature. Fortunately, in a book, you're able to use end notes and asides and things like that to make those kinds of points But the book allowed me to really dig into my own analysis in a way that, you know, that that's not sort of the nature of what a dissertation does. Um, But the book, I was able to really say, this is why this is critical. And this is why we should be thinking about this in this kind of way. Um, So the book writing process, um, in some regards, was very um, enjoyable and almost cathartic to try and think about what what the future of African-American satire might look like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really like that, uh, section where you talk about get out and we've already talked a little bit about insecure, but I know that people will really love reading that as well, because those were such, um, get out was such a, you know, critical film uh, in, in black horror and, uh, and just getting at, at black life, I think.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And so you mentioned that, you know, you are a professor, um, and, uh, Still, I guess a you know junior junior scholar, um, and so I was wondering if you use satire in your classes um, when you're when you're teaching. Um, do you teach any classes specifically about satire? And um, is it as tricky to teach with satire as it is for satirists to use it on stage?
0: Yes, yes to to all of your questions. Um, <laughs> so I use satire in pretty much all of my classes in some regard. Um, but particularly, you know, I teach a course on African American comedy where it as I've continued to teach this course, um, it's gotten more and more about satirical content and reading things satirically. Um, and we think in that class a lot about the effectiveness of jokes and what it means if a satire, Uh, misses its mark. One of the foundational texts that we use in that class is Percival Everett's Erasure, uh, which is specifically, it came out in the, uh, in 2000. And it's this text basically where um, somebody, you know, without giving anything away for, for listeners who, who might want to read this book because it's fantastic. um, It's a book where um, a character sort of gets frustrated and writes this, this parody of sort of abject blackness and um, the parody um, becomes this huge success. And, and, and um, but the satirical, uh, the satirical aspect of that is getting lost in translation. Um, and so we're thinking, we think a lot in that class about what happens when satire misses its mark, what it means, you know, up to the moment, um, when these comedians are create like what it means to be in this sort of African-American satirical boom period right now. Um, and so a lot of these classes are um, about digging into the words themselves and thinking not only about the content, but also the context and how these work together to make meaning. Um, and just because I'm interested in comedy and satire, I often use um, these sort of satirical elements in a lot of my A lot of my classes, I teach um, a course called um, Cultural Studies and Literary Theory, which is a major course for the English department. And um, the last time I taught it, um, as we were going through, I think we learned like 15 different cultural um, or literary theories. We learned 15 different literary theories in that class. And before, at the end of each class to sort of preview the next class, I would find a meme uh, that had something to do with the next Um, theory we were going to talk about and the students would all laugh and we'd kind of use that as our entryway into talking about how we could distill this literary theory to its basic parts. How would you talk about, you know, Marxist literary theory um, in just a few words if you were trying to convey it to somebody else? And so it's this way that, once again, satire can become a shorthand um, and satire also gives us a way to really think about the application of um, literature and theory in real life as well.
1: Yeah, I liked how you said the students laugh. It makes me think that using these satirical texts is also an enjoyable way for the students to learn this content. And in a way, it helps it bring it home even more to them because they're enjoying it. Um, You know, they're getting the joke. And then, you know, they can, as you said, apply it and really learn those lessons.
0: Exactly. Absolutely.
1: That must be really, really fantastic.
0: It's, yeah, I really, I really, really love teaching those classes. Absolutely.
1: And so, um, so we've kept you um, on here for some time. And so, to to conclude, I was wondering what projects you're currently working on, or projects that you have um, maybe coming up on the horizon that you that you want to jump into.
0: Absolutely. So I've been thinking a lot about the limits of satire, um, especially in this kind of post-Trump moment um, and I'm trying to think how do we write about satire when the world itself seems you know increasingly self satirizing, right? Like wh- where do we find the absurdity in fiction when real life is already so absurd? Um, and so I've noticed a number of satirists moving from comedy to horror. And I find that really, really fascinating. Obviously, Jordan Peele is the the biggest example, um, even though what's interesting about Jordan Peele is the fact that he always wanted to do horror and kind of fell into comedy. And now that he's established himself so much, he's able to move back to doing these horror movies. But when we think about Us, when we think about Get Out, when we think about his work on The Twilight Zone, all of these kinds of things um, that he's really leaning into horror. I know Chris Rock is going to be involved in the next Saw movie. You know, all of these kinds of ways these comedians are leaning into horror. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about this idea of what I'm calling right now black uncanniness, which is a way to work through uh, the fact that the world is self-satirizing. Um, so I see a lot of satirists right now kind of revisiting the idea of the double or what's familiar, but slightly off or slightly askew and how it's what we know or what we think we know. That's particularly horrifying. Um, what, what I, so what I'm trying to do is figure out why we're going back to these ideas of the uncanny. And if it's because, um, right now satirists are really interested in horror because they don't think we deserve laughing right now. Like they, they want to make sure that their meaning is as clear as possible. And so they are not giving us the out of laughter. Um, I'm not sure if that's what it is, but I'm kind of, um, I'm, I'm really, really interested in, in what that looks like right now.
1: Wow. That sounds really, um, that sounds really great and incredibly timely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> thank
1: you. So, um, thank you so much. I've been speaking with, uh, Dr. Danielle Morgan, about her book, Laughing to Keep from Dying, African-American Satire in the 21st Century, published by the University of Illinois Press. Um, thank you so much, Danielle, for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me today. This was great.